Where do you go in a world of bad takes? For the good takes on baseball and life with a balance of analytics and humor, philosophical music, effectively wild, effectively wild, effectively wild. Hello and welcome to episode 2066 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined as usual, almost as always, by Meg Rally of Fangrass. Hello, Meg. Hello. Someone pointed out, I think, in the Discord group that we often say, as always, yeah. if we're going to be pedantic about things, which yeah. often we are, it's not technically true. Each of us smitches an episode from now and then, so we're, we're not always yeah. joining the other we're overwhelmingly joined by yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Close that's enough. what we should say mm-hmm. i'm may rally of fangraphs <laughs> and i'm joined overwhelmingly often by ben limberger the ringer ben how are you <laughs> <laughs> doing great that Good. works all right Good. i was informed by an email in my inbox from major league baseball that shohei otani had the most popular player jersey in mlb this year for the first time in his career beating out Acuna, Judge, Tatis, Betts, Altuve, Julio, Matt Olson, Alex Bregman, Mike Trout, Freddie Freeman. Yeah. Does it does it surprise you at all that this was the first time? Because I was thinking, gosh, didn't a ton of people buy Otani jerseys in his previous amazing right. seasons? <laughs> and, and he was in the top 10, yeah. at least, in two previous seasons, 2018, when he debuted in MLB, and 2021, when he was the unanimous MVP. But apparently, there were enough people who had held off on purchasing the Otani jersey. I don't know yeah. if they were just like, you know what? I'm not sold, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> Could just, be a fluke. <laughs> it's not enough for me. I, I need to see him do it again. <laughs> you know? I, don't, I'm, I don't think I can be proud to represent this player. I don't think I can wear his name around unless he has another amazing right. two-way season that yeah. no one else could possibly have. It's got to be a 10-war season or yeah. bust. Then I will then. finally crack and, and buy your jersey. It is so interesting, Ben, because like who are who are the people who are most incentivized to buy an Otani jersey in the year of our Lord 2023? I feel like it, on the one hand it, it can only be Angels fans because if you're if you're a fan if you're a fan of another team and and that team spends any amount of money in free agency, you view them as having any sort of gumption at all. Don't you wait to buy an Otani jersey? Even if you're like, look, I just love the guy. He's the best player in baseball and it's so fun and exciting. But don't you wait to see like whose jersey he's wearing come opening day 2024? Because maybe it'll be your team. Like That's a good point. Yeah. I am not wanting to continue to belabor my experience with the Seattle Mariners. I am given to understand that some people find that irritating. But like if I were going to buy an Otani jersey, I don't think that they're going to sign him. But like I'd wait. You know, I'd wait until... I don't know when we think he'll sign at least January, probably right. He'll just hold out and and why not? He's the he's the main attraction of the winter, even with the injury. So 
I would wait because like maybe maybe it could say Seattle across the front, right? And if you, you know, let's say you're a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers and uh, he for some reason signed somewhere else, although I still think smart money's on them. You know, then you can just buy either the team he signs with or if, say, that team were the San Francisco Giants and you don't want to wear the jersey of a division rival, then I'm sure you can find an Otani jersey, an Otani Angels jersey, like on eBay, probably for a discount. So mm-hmm. it is it is surprising to me that it hasn't happened prior to now. That I can't explain. That suggests a lack of taste on the part of baseball fans. <laughs> and it is particularly surprising to me that it would happen in his walk year because unless you're like, I got to memorialize this, I was going to say this good time that we've had if you're an Angels <laughs> fan, but maybe this time that we've this had, time. maybe, yeah, we had you know, time together. Th- this era of of my fandom, you know, I, I get that. Although I would also get if you're an Angels fan, it being it being too painful, you know, mm-hmm. and you wanting to begin to move on and heal, you know. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's, I don't know, I'm, yeah. I am flummoxed. I want some sabermetrics on the, the player jersey sales. Like how much of it is just pure market size? Right. How much of it is how good a season you had? How much of it is you change teams or you debuted that season? Because if a bunch of people buy your jersey one year, then there are fewer people in the market for your jersey the following year. Right. I'm looking at, at previous year's emails in my inbox, and apparently Mookie Betts was the most popular jersey guy in 2021 and also in 2020. So hmm. he did it in consecutive years, but... I guess that was like his first year with the Dodgers was 2020 and then maybe people weren't going to games and weren't uh, going out and didn't need to buy jerseys. And so 2021, they all decided, okay, we can go out again. Now I can buy a jersey so I can proudly just represent Mookie Betts. So I guess that makes sense. But like Otani in 2018, his rookie season, he was the number eight jersey seller. And then in 2021, he was the number nine jersey seller. So how does how does that happen? How does he go uh-huh. from he debuts in MLB, wins rookie of the year, he's number eight, and he wins his first MVP, has his real breakthrough, healthy two-way MVP season, number nine. And yeah. then this year he moves up to number one. What's that all about? Because uh, what's that all about? You've already had people purchase Otani jerseys over the previous several seasons and I mean, I guess he was a bit better even this year than he'd been before, but perhaps a little less sensational in that uh, people kind of got used to the idea of him doing it. I wonder, could it be WBC related? Does this count like World Baseball Classic jersey sales? Maybe? Might might that have something to do with it? I wonder. Oh, maybe. Oh, you doesn't, know. doesn't specify, yeah, but that, it doesn't. that would explain things. That would that would explain some things, and then mm. it would be really cool because you're getting the Team Japan one. Like right. I think that if I were a disinterested party, like I would like to have him in like Samurai Japan, or you mm. know, or go back to like the MPB days, because mm. then because then it's a cool conversation piece. You're expressing your you know appreciation for his game, and you're not in a weird spot where like you're wearing another club's jersey if you're a fan of a specific team so that that might be a good sort of way of addressing it if you're an american baseball fan and you're like what do i do yes 
That's the yeah. one I have, in fact. Right. I'm, I'm not a big jersey wearer or purchaser, but I was actually yeah. gifted an Otani Samurai Japan jersey by an effectively wild secret Santa years ah. ago. Just uh, the perfect gift. So perfect I'm all set. Gift. I did not buy an Otani jersey this yeah. year. I'm not among <laughs> the throngs <laughs> who did, apparently. Well, I mean, there's the good news is, Ben, if you change your mind, there's still time. So Yep. So we're going to do some emails. We're going to wrap up with a stat blast and, in fact, a, a guest stat blast. But there's something happening here that <laughs> I have gotten only the outline of. And you were like, we should probably talk about this. And I was like, maybe you can explain it to me on the podcast because I've seen a bunch of people talking about it. And I've been busy and I have not done the necessary research to find out exactly what happened. But I know that the Mets have metsed. And so I oh, want to know exactly how they metsed. So tell me what's going on with the Mets grounds crew and the Mets and the Marlins. Oh. I think that everyone kind of wonders what's going on with the Mets grounds crew. And I'm going to try to get this right because I feel like I am missing something here, if only because I know that weather forecasting is not always precise. But, uh, you know, my sense is that, like, we know when there's going to be, like, a big dump of rain. Mm -hmm. They Mets a couple of times. So for for those not wanting to subject themselves to Mets baseball right now and perhaps indifferent to the Marlins, the, the Mets and the Marlins were set to have a, a tilt, a series, and the Marlins were at the time in pursuit of a wild card spot and are currently in possession of a wild card spot. And so even though the Mets are out of it, um, the Marlins are not, right? Like, they are... They are really trying to go for it, and they ended up having one of their games uh, on Tuesday night postponed uh, and had to play a, a doubleheader on Wednesday because, well, here I will read from a Ken Rosenthal piece published in The Athletic. This is part one of the Metzing, Ben, so... Mm -hmm. Okay. Strap in. There's going to be more messing to come. Marlins officials granted anonymity in exchange for their candor were told the problem with the playing surface at City Field arose because the Mets ground crew did not cover the infield Saturday, the first of four straight days of rain. I am given to understand that you guys are just getting pounded with rain, Ben. So just much rain. I know sucked, the, the sucked entire rain. nation needs to be subjected to New York weather updates. No, but it's quite dramatic looking. It, <laughs> but yeah, the, the forecast has been... It's pouring yeah. for, I don't know, a week. There was one nice day, and otherwise it's just been buckets and buckets, and the subways are flooding, and flooding. the daycare is closed, oh, really? <laughs> which is uh, impacting Eey. me personally. But yeah, well, it's, it's wet out there. Yeah, so, and the Mets themselves were playing in Philadelphia at the time of this happening. Here I am going to continue uh, quoting, the grounds crew eventually put the tarp down, but water got under it, creating a mess. The infield took on so much water from Saturday to Monday, the grounds crew did not have enough of a dry period to get the infield back to a playable condition Tuesday. Both clubs and the commissioner's office then determined the best course of action was to postpone, citing player safety and the importance of the game. So they played a doubleheader on Wednesday. And then yesterday, Thursday, we were recording on Friday, they were uh, meant to play another game. And then, Ben, it started to rain again. It started yep. to rain again in this series finale. And at the time, 
The Marlins were leading the Mets. It is <laughs> it is the top of the ninth. They have pulled ahead. They had sort of rallied back. And based on the re- sort of the reporting of The Athletic and also ESPN, you will be perhaps unsurprised to learn that my attention was focused on the Seattle Mariners. So I wasn't, you know, clocking the time when this uh, stopped, but I've been able to piece it together, I think, that play stopped at 9.41 p.m. local time. And the game was not officially suspended until 12.58 a.m. You'll notice that that is quite a gap. And here I'm going to quote from ESPN's piece about this. With rain letting up, the tarp had been removed around 12.20 a.m. Miami's manager Skip Shoemaker became involved on the field in an animated conversation with umpire crew chief Alfonso Marquez, a member of the Mets ground crew, and New York senior vice president of ballpark operations, Sue Lucci. A few minutes later, the tarp went back on the field. The Mets vacated their dugout shortly thereafter. We had two or three potential start times, Buckshaw Walter said. We were ready to go, and then it kept closing. It would open, and we would go quick and pull the tarp, but underneath is wet, too. And then from the athletic, the field was soaked in several places. From there, heavier rain returned. They then covered the field again. And here are the stakes of this. So right now, the Marlins are a half game ahead of the Cubs for the third wildcard spot, and one and a half games ahead of the Reds. They are one and a half games behind the Diamondbacks, who hold the second wildcard. Miami holds the head-to-head tiebreaker with Chicago and Arizona. They have a tied season series with Cincinnati, but they hold the second tiebreaker against Cincy, interdivisional record. And so it is very possible that the Marlins are going to have to go back on Monday to complete this game against the Mets to determine whether or not they are in the postseason. What is unclear at this moment is what happens if Monday's action is not necessary to determine in or out, but is necessary to determine where they are seated within the wildcard field. Philly can't be displaced in the one spot, but obviously... There is a, a, a set of uh, wins and losses between them and Arizona this weekend that would result in them potentially leapfrogging the Diamondbacks. And then my question for you, Ben Lindbergh, is if that happens, what is Miami's best course of action here? Because they could kind of decide who they want to play, right? Yeah. If they ended up in a spot where they were tied with Arizona, they have the tiebreaker, so they could go play and try to push ahead or they could forfeit and try to go play the Brewers as the third wild card and let the Diamondbacks try to contend with Philly. <laughs> and I think that that would melt the internet if they did that. And I don't <laughs> think that they'll do that. Like it what you know, what a that's like a scandalous thing for me to suggest. But <laughs> and I don't know candidly that with the quality of the Brewers rotation that you'd necessarily want to face them instead like i don't know that that Mm. is an easier path forward through the postseason field i i haven't looked to see how milwaukee's pitching lines up for this weekend so i don't know who they're sort of they would be projected to face in in my in milwaukee but anyway these are all the thoughts that are swirling and all of it is because the mets ground crew like i don't know man like I know that sometimes weather is intense and the the rain that you guys are getting does seem like it is really something. And yeah, so it's torrential. It's biblical. It's, and so I think that to be fair to the Mets and their potential Metsing, 
I'm not sure that there is a, a tarp in in existence that would be able to successfully handle this kind of rain. Mm-hmm. But also, it doesn't sound like it was maybe put in the best position to succeed. So, mm-hmm. little bit of little bit of drama at the end here. And of course, this might not end up mattering much at all because it is somewhat dependent on what the Marlins are, you know, able to do this weekend and what the Diamondbacks are able to do. But it is it is a a little bit of weather related drama. Yeah. Miami faces Pittsburgh for the final weekend here while the Diamondbacks have to take take care of business against the Houston Astros at home in Arizona. And of course, you know, the thing that everyone is really wondering is like, how does that D-back series potentially impact the Seattle Mariners? And I'm here to tell you the fact that they lost yesterday, well, yesterday against the White Sox means that Zach Allen has to pitch today. So I don't know. It could be, could, you know, maybe their earlier losing could help out. The, it could be fine. So yeah, Metzing, Metzing. I made the Metzing <laughs> about the Mariners. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Well, I'm glad the Mets could be a factor in the playoff race. <laughs> and uh, does this count yeah. as as playing spoiler? If if you just <sighs> neglect to put the tarp on the field, that's well, I, that that's not a you had one job situation because the grounds crew has a number of jobs, but that is maybe foremost among them. It's yes. certainly close to the top of the list. You gotta gotta put that tarp down. Well, and I'm curious, what are the repercussions of having? goofed up so badly here like are there repercussions like can they be i guess they would be fined like they're clearly not doing this to it doesn't seem like this is a purposeful strategy on the part of the mets this just seems like a a mistake a, a potentially costly one for miami to be sure but a mistake but you don't want clubs you know tarping to impact a playoff race like that's a bad you know i don't know if it's it might be worse than umpiring affecting a playoff race, actually. I haven't given thought to the uh, <laughs> my exact ranking, but mm-hmm. just because it seems like a much like dumber mistake than than an umpire making a goof in a game, even though you know those are impactful on their own. It's just the the sheer yeah, silliness, that. yeah, <laughs> yeah, of a of a tarp coming down to a tarp, and and for a team that you know in its home ballpark can just close the roof. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for explaining that. <laughs> I hope I I hope I got all of the little details of that right. And I, you know, I don't I don't want to make the Mets grounds crew feel worse about their situation than I'm sure they already do. But it does seem like you got to have a like. Did they just not have to go to the ballpark because the team was on the road over the weekend? Like somebody's <laughs> job isn't like oh, I gotta go to take care of that. You know, it's like if right. you forget to go feed someone's cat when they're out of town. <laughs> Yeah, I I saw someone trying to argue that the Marlins should be entitled to a forfeit over this, uh, which I, uh, seems quite unlikely that, yeah. that that would happen or even that that should happen. But yeah, that was being discussed at least. By the way, the Brewers' probable starters this mm. weekend are Colin Ray, Jansen Junk, and Adrian Hauser. So oh. not, not not the big arms. Right. So again, I don't know that there would really be much incentive to do the thing that melts the internet because, like, you really want to deal with the 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 best guys that Milwaukee mm-hmm. has to offer. I wouldn't. That sounds terrible. I mean, they mm-hmm. can't hit a lick, but they sure can pitch. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. One more thing. I don't know whether you edited this piece or not, but Eric Longenhagen wrote about the incredible shrinking minor leakers. (laughs) Yes, he did. I did edit that piece. (laughs) Can you explain why many minor leakers uh, suddenly seem to have shrunk? (laughs) It's not because they were left out in the rain and the Mets grounds crew forgot to cover them. It's uh, something else at work here. Yeah, I think like, so there's, there are two questions. It's like, why are they, why are their listed heights smaller, shorter, shorter? Their listed heights are shorter, they're less than they were. And also why were they incorrect in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, Eric did some, did some reporting on this score. You know, the, I think the obvious culprit for why they would have changed to him and, and maybe to our listeners is that, you know, in AAA and also some of the minor league levels in Florida, they are using the automated ball strike system to call about half of the game. So like for part of the week at AAA, it's uh, the full ABS is what they call it. Mm -hmm. And then for the, I believe for the weekend series, they're doing the ABS assisted challenge system, which we've discussed on this podcast before. And the way that the strike zone was, initially determined within the ABS system relied on taking the listed height of the player and then doing calculations to set the bottom and top of the strike zone. And that is not the approach that they are going to take going forward. They're going to actually use Hawkeye to sort of take checkpoints of the the player's height, like the individual player's height, and use that to determine what his zone is. Because when they were doing the the listed height thing, they were taking, you know, the bottom of the zone, I think it was like 23% of the listed height and the top was 51%. And that wasn't like personalized to the guy in terms of like where his knee is and where the top of the letters are and his belt and all that stuff. So now they're going to use Hawkeye to, to try to bring individualization to the zones. But before they had done that, MLB sent personnel to spring training camps to measure all of these guys (laughs) because they had to have an accurate height for ABS and hundreds of them shrunk (laughs) over the years. Eric has sort of manually maintained heights and weights in the, the spreadsheets that feed the board and that sort of are used to generate the little tables that you see accompanying every prospect's write up on our prospect list. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, the adjustments that he would make to either of those measurements would be the weights cuz as we have talked about on this podcast many times over the years, they can they they can be very loosey-goosey with weights. <laughs> like mm-hmm. how often they're updated, how accurate they are. And so he would sort of uh, adjust guys where it felt necessary, largely deferred to listed heights, uh, except in cases where guys were sort of like egregiously underreported. Like it took a while for O'Neill Cruz's MILB player page to reflect his actual height. Yeah. Um, but we could look at the guy and be like, well, that guy's giant. So <laughs> it was adjusted manually. But, you know, as we go through our process of doing the lists, Eric will sort of cross check everyone who's a prospect, a, a listed, a ranked prospect this year versus what's on their MILB player page. And that is what led him to notice that there had been this 
shrinkage because um, uh-huh. <laughs> he had a he had a data set that allowed him to do that. And so he talked to a bunch of people with with teams and with MLB to kind of get a sense of what role the ABS stuff played in it. And then was sort of thinking through not only why they had changed, which I think kind of became obvious, but also sort of what would have led to this sort of widespread overreporting of height. And, you know, he, he posits a couple of explanations, most of which are just, you know, they're kind of slow to update. They're small changes. Players are perhaps overstating their height pre-draft or pre-signing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For shame. I yeah. can't and believe then, it. Yeah. And then there's not a prior to now, there hasn't really been a process to verify any of that data. Yeah. So there's that piece of it. You know, I think that if you look at the the big table of uh, height changes that he has, like, you know, there are some teams that have more changes than others. And, you know, without pointing specific fingers, like it, it's possible that some of those teams were perhaps overstating the heights of their prospects in an effort to influence other teams pro scouting models because height mm-hmm. is an input into that. And, you know, Eric makes reference to a trade he knows of where a guy's actual height was several inches shorter than what he was listed at. And that would have actually tipped the scales in terms of whether or not he was a trade target. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some of it is just like human error and or guys like slouching and trying to sort of manipulate the zone a little bit. Right. But that didn't strike him as a particularly compelling explanation just based on the timing of when the ABS stuff was happening and the fact that it was independent MLB people doing this, you'd have to, you know, be, there might've been some like, Hey, you're kind of slouching and not standing fully upright mm-hmm. because it does affect the size of your zone. But that yeah. is probably too, the magnitudes of these changes suggest that that isn't probably explaining all of it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It was like a cool little yeah. thing that he noticed and uh, it took a while to report all that out and talk to people with teams and the league. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, it does, it impacts our understanding of these guys. You know, we have sort of heuristics in mind on the position player side, and, and most of these changes were among hitters mm-hmm. about like, you know, the size a guy has to be to do a thing, right? right? Like how much time have we spent talking about shortstops? They're so small. They're so big. They're so much bigger than they were. Like, you know, the those dimensions sort of inform the mental heuristics we have for those positions. And pretty loosey-goosey so Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i was wondering what would happen when we got a ground truth measurement and right i guess the truth is closer to the ground in many cases not in all cases there are some guys whose sites went up right but but mostly down i guess and yeah by as as many as four inches in some cases (laughs) but yeah yeah it's kind of a honey hawkeye shrunk the minor leaguers yeah deal shouldn't it be Shouldn't be shrank. Shouldn't shouldn't those movies have been? I shrank the kids. It, uh, Honey, maybe I shrank both, the kids. Maybe they're both acceptable now, but, but yeah, I think that would be pedantically speaking more correct. Anyway, you gotta send you gotta send Rick Moranis a, a note. <laughs> yeah, when they get Hawkeye in online dating, it's over. That's, oh boy. <laughs> that, well, and now that the now that Hawkeye is is going to be the primary sort of mechanism by which the zone is determined, we might not have need for precision going forward right if you don't need if it can just determine the guy's zone and there's some detail in the piece about sort of the the mechanics of that unrelated to the the shrink the shrinkage question (laughs) they were in the pool that people should uh will probably find interesting but like we might not have 
we might not have a, a golden era of accurate measures uh, unless mm -hmm. they decide they really want one because you don't need the guy's listed height. You just need Hawkeye to do its thing. So, yeah, yeah I don't know, man. It's It's interesting stuff, though. Yeah, it'll be interesting if we can analyze down the road. Like the, was there more clustering at at right. let's say five ten and right. six feet uh, than than there suddenly is now? <laughs> was right. was there an improbable number of uh, guys who were claiming a a round number height that uh, if we get greater precision, we find that maybe yeah. it's a little more evenly distributed. We shall see. Yeah. I meant to mention, by the way, Kim Eng's quote, Marlon's yes. GM, on all of what you told me about. Without getting into the details, obviously, this is an unfortunate incident. <laughs> it's just so measured, so diplomatic. I <laughs> Very would. gracious of her not to get into the details. Yeah. She didn't say metzing even one time. Mm -mm. Everyone else said that for her. Yeah, that's All right. True. Let's do a few emails here. Okay. Ruben says... Ben referred recently to, quote unquote, our problem with starters not going as deep into games. And I wanted mm. to repeat a dissenting opinion. My elbow starts barking every time you suggest requiring pitchers to throw volume in order to deter max effort appearances. However, I also understand I'm probably in the minority in loving the development of small market teams with stacked bullpens outperforming rotations of passable starters. One thing I had been hoping for that hasn't quite materialized is the democratization of innings we have periodically seen in playoff series, 2017 McCullers, 2019 Corbin, where you would have more in-season pitchers straddling our classical expectations for starters and relievers. My hope would be that each individual pitcher has a Goldilocks zone of effort level and volume to prevent injury. My question for both of you, would it be fulfilling if decreasing the size of pitching staffs led to more three to four inning appearances chained together instead of the classic starter outings of yore? It's a good question because it forces us to think about, like, let's say it's four innings. What's the difference between six and four? I mean, like, we know what the difference is, but Two. is that a meaningful narrative difference, right? Does it alter our understanding of the game as it's played? One of the reasons we like quote-unquote traditional starters is that they provide a nice narrative anchor to the game. It's not mm -hmm. the only reason we like it, but for me, it's one of the big ones. And if you knew you were going to get, you know, a couple guys piggybacked on a regular basis and they weren't going to just go one inning. So you're not going to get annoyed with a bunch of pitching changes or at least less annoyed than you would when there's a steady stream of relievers. I don't know. I don't know if that, you know, we get, we get used to a lot of stuff. So I don't want to assume that we couldn't adjust to that, but I do think we'd still be losing something. And, you know, there's like, that's before we consider sort of the obvious economic impact that continued dwindling starter innings have on the player population in terms of what they're able to demand in salary. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I could see that being cool and fun. You know, I could see us thinking about it as sort of like a, a, a particularly if there's some stability in like the pairings, you know, if you have guys who yeah. very often piggyback with one another, like... I don't know, maybe we think of them as like, you know, like they're tag teaming in, right. you know, we get so many crisscross promos, my stars, like we mm -hmm. would just get so many and some creative person would bring in like the Olsen sisters and try to use that. 
So I could see I could see it building toward something. Yeah. But I don't know. I I still I still suspect we'd be missing out on some stuff that's pretty cool. And the you know, if if this were the shift that we saw across the game, you know, we talked when we were talking about sort of the the George Kirby situation, like do you end up training guys to the point where like they realistically aren't well suited to go, you know, 90 100 115 pitches and so it's appropriate for them to say hey that's not my job that's not how i've been developed as an athlete if you have a bunch of piggyback guys then you're really gonna be hurting if what you either need because of circumstance or want because of circumstance is a guy who's like yeah like it's 10 more than i typically go but like i'm about to throw a perfect game so you're not pulling me from this one right so yeah some of and that's a that's a tiny fraction of starts where that's even a consideration right but we would lose those so i don't Mm -hmm. know it's something to think about yeah, people have proposed this or wondered when we'll see this or when are the Rays going to do this? I guess the Rays are kind of the closest to doing something like this right. where they will tend to pull starters uh, earlier than most teams and then they'll have openers and bulk guys and good bullpens. But I don't think you're ever going to get a team that will just say everyone goes three or everyone goes four because you're always going to have better pitchers than others. And right. it would be silly to sort of hamstring yourself by saying right. we're not going to have our better pitchers pitch more innings, all else being equal. So, yeah, it probably if some team really dedicated itself to this, it would be novel and innovative and interesting for that team in that season. And then if it caught on and everyone was doing it, then we'd probably get sick of that too. <laughs> but yeah. I, I guess it, it might be better in some ways than just the parade, the succession of one inning guys you've never really heard of in right. many cases. If everyone's going at least three all the time, then you're at least going to know their names and right. recognize their faces. And yeah. yeah, it would almost be like, then it would be sort of, you'd, you'd have probables. It would almost be like when you know who's the bulk guy and the opener, you would know, okay, here's here's the piggyback person and here's the the guy who's piggybacking on that guy's back i don't know we would have to come up with names for them but yeah i I guess this might be better than what we have in some ways but maybe not preferable to what we used to have just from a a narrative perspective yeah well and it's like you think about um i mean thinking about tampa specifically like there's still gonna be some limit to it just because of the roster limit piece of it. And like, you know, Tampa, I do think that we tend to overstate how much of what Tampa does is Tampa wanting to do it and needing Mm -hmm. to do it because of injury or, you know, underperformance or whatever. You know, you think about some of the guys on that team that have made sort of the biggest impression this year, you know, David Lorla had a piece that ran today where he talked to broadcasters and beat writers for the Rays about like who is the most underrated player on the Tampa Bay Rays because a lot of national fans don't necessarily know who all those guys are. And a lot of them named Zach Littell. And part of why was that this guy who was sort of a whatever reliever has come in and managed to be like a 
pretty good starter and one who is often since transitioning to the rotation throwing five six in some cases seven (laughs) or eight innings right and like that has been hugely valuable to tampa bay in part because it has helped them to sort of stabilize their bullpen unit and that's also the result of players sort of playing better and robert stevenson emerging as like a really good reliever out of nowhere in a way that is very tampa but Mm -hmm. even tampa like is really happy that Zach Littell is doing Zach Littell stuff. And so, you know, I do think it's important for us to all remember, like, the preference versus necessity equation for the Rays, because I think it, you know, I don't want to say that they're not clever. They do great stuff. They have excellent player development. They're able to sort of navigate those situations in a way that a lot of other clubs couldn't. But I'm sure that, like, they would really like it if, you know, Jeffrey Springs were healthy. <laughs> you know, they'd be pretty stoked if they had Drew Rasmussen right now. So, you yeah. know, that that piece of it and Shane McClanahan, for that matter, like, mm-hmm. you know, they're even teams that are willing to get creative with the bullpen starter distribution, like are like, but what if Shane McClanahan weren't broken right now, though? That'd be so great for us. Yeah. So. Zach Littell's season has not escaped my notice. It has it's, perhaps escaped my comprehension, but uh, yeah. not my notice. How <laughs> so. was Zach Littell not on the bonkers list? He should have just been on the bonkers list all by himself. Like, mm-hmm. how, how is this? A th- how is it yeah. happening, though, we Ben? Have, it's we so have brought remarkable. you plenty of Jake Diekman coverage this season. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we should have so. spent maybe five minutes every episode just trying to like parse through the Zach Littell of it all because mm-hmm. good grief. Yeah. Jake yeah. Diekman with the Rays FIP update down to 3.21 with a oh 2.23 ERA. Boy. All right. Question from Tom related pitcher usage question. On episode 2059, you said something along the lines of UCL injuries are the biggest problem in baseball and lamented that we can't get guys to exert less effort, even if it means saving their arms. Lots of solutions have been floated that would indirectly influence the issue, such as smaller pitching staffs, my preferred solution. This made me wonder, why not go straight to the source and institute a pitch speed limit where anything above that speed is an automatic ball? I'm not sure where the threshold should be, but maybe around 90 plus or minus. I'm guessing just about everyone would hate this, especially Mm. old school fans. But hear me out. If the reason everyone is getting hurt is that they're throwing max effort all the time, wouldn't it be better for everyone if everyone had to dial it back a notch? or maybe multiple notches, pitchers aren't incentivized to do this individually now because they'd just be less effective than everyone else. But if everyone had to do it, pitchers would all benefit from better health. It's sort of a prisoner's dilemma. Additionally, this would address the other issue that gets cited as the biggest problem in baseball, the year-after-year increases in strikeout rates. So I mentioned to Tom this was asked and answered on episode 449. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which was a very long time ago, and I don't know what I said, and you weren't there. So I think it's probably about time that we answer this one again. So what do you think? Uh, a pitch speed limit. Am I right to remember that Craig and Patrick wrote about this at Baseball Prospectus in the not too distant past they talked about like the idea of a restrictor plate for right. for pitchers like in racing i don't know if they specifically said like actually making them throw less hard by having a, a speed limit or a pitch maximum miles per hour but the idea was we we need to get people to dial back a bit so this would just be 
hey, you got your stat cast and it tells you that you threw above the speed limit and you just you get pulled over and you have to show your license and registration and then you get a ball assessed to you. So it's uh, it's strict. Maybe there could be some leeway, you know, beginning of the game or something if you're just getting a feel for your stuff that day or or whether the the gun is hot in that park or or something maybe you could get a a grace period but after that you throw too fast then you pay the price this question makes me wonder how precise the the thought going through a pitcher's head is when you know either through his pitch com or you know the his catcher puts down the sign for four seam. Like how precise are they being in terms of the thought they're putting into like, I'm about to throw 96, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's like an obvious potential implementation issue with something like this, which is that I wonder if they think about it more in terms of like, I'm really going to let one loose or I'm going to hold a little back, right? Where it's it's a matter of sort of relative degree to what they know their max effort to be. And I'm sure mm-hmm. that they know sort of the general miles per hour range that that sits in. But I wonder how much like re-education <laughs> you'd need <laughs> yeah. to do, right? Yeah. To be able to affect something like this practically. Because, you know, a pitcher's fastball velocity is going to, generally have a range it sits in it might not always be you know i'm able to lock in on 92 versus 97 you know i think it's probably more like thought of in in terms of like here's the effort i'm putting into it with this particular grip so i Mm -hmm. think that that would be i imagine it would be really challenging to even if you got buy-in from from players to be like, hey, we're really concerned about your health. We understand there's like a, a collective action problem here where your incentives to be the first guy to decelerate are really low because you're going to be at a disadvantage, but we're going to bring you all down together and then, you know, it's going to be okay because none of you are going to be able to go above 95 without penalty. Like even if they were like, awesome, it's so good to not have that pressure anymore. Way to go. My arm's going to feel so nice tomorrow morning. Like, even if that were true, I think it would be really hard to to affect in a way that didn't just devolve into, like, chaos on the field all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, you know, there, are gonna, there would probably be plenty of guys who would say, look, my stuff plays way better at 97 than it does at 93. And the way that my, you know, fastest, hardest fastball interacts with my secondary pitches I like the way that works the way that it is right now. So sorry, but like, I don't, I, I don't think this is a good idea. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that having the, having an automatic ball be the penalty would be, would motivate people to attempt compliance, but I just don't know how easy that would be even with buy-in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think people would like it. There would be an advantage, I think, for pitchers who, had enough feel for their stuff that they could totally. really creep up close to the line. Yeah. If the line is 90 or if the line is higher than 90, wherever you right. set the line, some guys who maybe don't have quite as as precise control over their speed right. would have to make sure that they left a bit of a buffer and yeah. then they would throw even slower 
then they have to just to be safe whereas other guys maybe they would know you know like maybe right. Zach Greinke knows yeah I'm gonna throw oh, this yeah. one 89 and this one 87 and I know exactly yeah. what that feels like right so I don't know for sure but I feel very comfortable speculating yeah. that that guy knows mm-hmm. yeah right yeah all the stories about how he you know tried to hit specific numbers on the right. radar gun to to you know got to catch them all right and and Kyle Hendricks and guys like that obviously this would favor finesse pitchers who have already mastered the art of putting a little on taking a right. little off as opposed to the guys who are just max effort all the time all so the time. this would it would certainly i mean i guess it would put more of an emphasis on off-speed stuff if, yeah. if the velo ceiling is lower and if it's the same for everyone you can't differentiate yourself if it were 90 almost everyone can at least touch 90 sometimes so so then at that point there's no such thing really as a flamethrower anymore you can't really differentiate yourself by throwing right. harder at least not with your your fastball and that does make a huge performance difference now so there would just be a, a great flattening i suppose of pitching performance i i wouldn't actually like that really i i, I wouldn't like just everyone to sort of throw the same speed because like the caliber of play in baseball is high enough that everyone would just be bumping up against the ceiling all the time yeah. and it would just be kind of boring like everyone throwing the same at least speed with their fastball over and over and over again now yeah everyone throws pretty hard these days but there's still some significant variation there might be as, as much as 10 miles per hour or, or even more in in some extreme cases between a, a guy's max fastball speed so i wouldn't want to completely take away that weapon from someone who can throw triple digits it's fun to see triple digits right. sometimes when you really need it which right. is the thing i guess you could relax this in the way that the pitch clock is a little more lenient with runners on base you could maybe relax the speed limit a little too like in situations where you gotta reach back for a little extra as they right. say but that would be tough too that would yeah. be even harder than to recalibrate from pitch to pitch and better to better and inning to inning so yeah i don't i don't like it <laughs> yeah I, I i think there are just more elegant solutions to this than just saying you are not allowed to throw above right. a certain speed i would prefer to just have some incentives in there so that yeah. uh, pitchers are encouraged not to throw as hard as they possibly can but when they really need it you know they have to make that calculation of uh, here's where i can coast and yeah. here's how much i have left in the tank as starters used to back in the day when they yeah. were expected to go deeper into games so I guess it would work, but it's it's a very sort of brute force yes. solution, and and I think it would have some aesthetic consequences as well. And I just, again, I just think it would be chaos. People would mm -hmm. be so, you know, we should we should try very hard not to make people who are already hyper competitive and very emotionally invested in what they're doing a little bit pissy you know like because <laughs> they're already in such a state to like do this impossible thing like let's not make them a little pissy you know mm -hmm. then you end up with benches clearing and guys running out and everyone getting grumpy it's terrible yeah 
Declan says, like many music nerds, I like giving numerical ratings to records as I listen to them a la Pitchfork. One of the quirks of my system is a plus or minus error bar for each rating that accounts for the range of ways an album might make me feel depending on my emotional state when I listen to it. For example, my album of the year in 2022 was Big Thieves, Dragon New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You, great album, which I gave a 9.7 plus or minus 0.25. As sometimes there's not a better song in the world than Simulation Swarm, but other times I'm not horribly in my feelings, and it's merely one of the best songs ever. This contrasts to a more volatile listen, such as Soul Glow's Diaspora Problems, which I gave an 8.8 plus or minus 0.7. This record is amazing, but so abrasive sonically that it's really, really, really good when you're in the right mood and a challenging listen when you're not. All of this is to say, I was listening to episode 2065's conversation about Ronald Acuna Jr. v. Mookie Betts for MVP. Mm. Meg usefully pointed out that Fangrass War has some error bars that should be taken into account when talking about players' amazing individual F-War totals. Any yes. war does, right? Yep. My question is, why don't we formalize that? Mm. Why present war as a single number that implies a level of specificity that we can't really have when we could calculate the exact plus or minus error bar score like I do on my subjective music rankings, except using the objective mathematical error derived from war calculations and included on leaderboards? I think it might help non-fangraphs war literate folks grasp that we're talking about a range of possible values instead of a specific one. Well, Ben, did you see that I responded to this email? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I sent a little response. So I like this idea, and I'm not opposed to it. It's not without precedent in terms of data presentation like on our site, and certainly isn't without precedent precedent in other people's data presentation like i think that if you look at an individual player's pakoda projection i think that they show you sort of mm -hmm. what the the distribution of of outcomes is our playoff yeah. odds at fangraphs have a a mode that you can view that in which we should tell more people about because everyone's always surprised every time I tell them. They're like, you do? And I'm like, we have for years and years. We've had it so many years. can go to display options, distribution, and I'll tell you right there. I mean, like everything's like really tightly clustered right now because the season's almost over. But yeah. there's, you know, a bigger range when it's earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I think that having that as like as maybe a view would be interesting to people. But I said in my response, and I, I do suspect I'm right, that like Declan is maybe uh, has greater optimism than I do that this would like tamp down and cool down the conversation. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because I I think that the I think there are sort of two camps of of folks who get sort of irritated and irked this time of year with war when it comes to awards discussions. There's like the group of people who are mad not because they struggle to understand the limitations of war, but because they think that we have, we being the analytics community, have overstated its precision. And I don't know that that, that perspective is one that can be sort of negotiated down. So there's that. Like, I, I just think that, candidly, I think that some of those folks are like arguing with people from 10 years ago, <laughs> even though that hasn't really been the perspective of public facing folks in a long time and candidly I don't think it was really the perspective of the people who initiated the war era I think they were pretty honest about the precision or lack thereof when you're talking about very small differences in in wins above replacement mm -hmm. and then I think for folks who are less familiar with war and how it's derived I don't know that that adds clarity I think it would be 
perhaps more confusing to see this range and it's like what does that mean like are you yeah are you saying your numbers are bad like you know (laughs) i think that part of the challenge that analytically inclined baseball fans and writers have is like striking this balance between being sufficiently sort of humble and inviting when asked like what does this mean and also having the appropriate level of of confidence about it because i think you can overstate the case too like war isn't perfect but (laughs) again why did we should have named it if i have one gripe ben we should have named it something else because of course war isn't perfect war is terrible but (laughs) wins above replacement not a perfect metric but i think it's a it's a good metric and i think that it's an incredibly useful framework to understand the relative contributions of uh, players on the field and the shape of those contributions. So mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, we don't want to undersell it either. So that's that's a tricky thing. But I, I take Declan's point, and I think that you know maybe having some kind of at least when it comes to the projections, that might be a place where it's more practical than on the actual war leaderboards to like give people some sense of the range even going into this season might be a useful thing for folks i don't know yeah baseball prospectus also does list this for some other stats like deserved runs created plus their offensive stat and deserved run average if you look at their leaderboards at baseballprospectus.com like i'm looking at the the hitting leaderboard here and they have Ronald Acuna, 176 DRC plus. And then there's a column that says DRC plus SD, standard right. deviation, that says 17. And then they have uh, Mookie. They have him with a, a lower DRC plus 148, but a, a 15 standard deviation. Otani, 162 with a 24. Bit of a wider range, I guess, because he had fewer plate appearances maybe. Right. right? So I think they have been doing this for a while and I don't really see people citing it <laughs> very often. I don't even see baseball prospectus writers citing that very often. Right. I'm fine with it existing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't object to being able to look at that. But I don't think anyone's done it with war. Right. Because I guess you'd have to quantify the the differing degrees of error when it comes right. to like offense and base running and defense. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure that could be done, but but yeah, I think it would mystify people. Yes, <laughs> you know, I I think Declan is maybe assuming a level of statistical literacy here right. that uh, perhaps is over optimistic, right? So right, so, like, <laughs> like yeah. someone who doesn't. No, or you know, he he said it. It might help non-fangraphs war literate folks grasp that we're talking about a range of possible values. I guess so, but if you're non-war literate, then I feel like it's even a bigger ask to be like right. <laughs> it's standard not deviation number, literate. Know? Yeah, yeah, because because people. Yeah, they just might not understand the concept of a range. Like, is it is it that or is it not? And right. uh, are you saying there's error? Why don't you fix the error so that right. <laughs> so that it's right? right? And and people sometimes already get upset about the fact that there are multiple 
wars, right? Oh, sometimes get upset about that fact? <laughs> Very often get upset they about that quite fact. quite often get upset about yeah, that. Yeah, and, and they'll say, oh, well, if they can't even agree on right. what the war is, and this site has that Why war. Why should I take site. it seriously? Yeah, they don't even know what they're doing. They can't even get on the same page themselves, so why should I trust them, right? And of course, you know, it's different assumptions and different formulae, and, and there are some advantages to having different calculations of these things, and you can use the one you like. But I fear that there would be a similar reaction to showing it's a 8.0 war plus or minus 0.7 or whatever. It's like, right. well, what is it? What does that right. mean? You know, people aren't, aren't comfortable with uncertainty like that. They aren't. And like, I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to make anybody feel badly about that. Right. But I just think about some of the conversations that we have on a pretty regular basis as a community around you know like what our playoff odds mean mm -hmm. and how to engage with probability as like a concept and we're having to have that conversation with like people who work in baseball in marketing and PR roles but they're in the game like they're in this stuff every day right and we still have to have that conversation every year like you know fox sports retweeted our playoff odds for the orioles on opening day and they were so kind to tag us so i'm sure that john's dealing with really great menchies right now <laughs> but it's like that conversation is one that i feel like as a, a community we have very often and we're still having to do work to help kind of get people on the same page in terms of like what we're trying to do and what what feeds those odds and how are they different from Vegas and you know like how do they why how and why do they change over a season and how are our playoff odds that are based on dynamic depth charts different than like the playoff odds you see on baseball reference and you know we have to say the same thing a lot around that stuff and so I think that there probably is a part of the broader community, likely people who use Fangraphs fairly often and baseball prospectus and reference, right, who would appreciate something like that. But I think that the idea that you're going to put, you know, like, we'll let's use the baseball prospectus example again, like you're going to put a guy's DRC plus and then say, well, it's standard deviation number 17. So you got it, right? You know, like, mm -hmm. I, I just don't know that that's the most effective strategy if what we're trying to do is just bring everyone's understanding to a common place. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean that there's not a place for it on the site because we got a lot of stuff on fan graphs that people <laughs> would be like, what the heck does that mean? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but if the purpose is to try to kind of calm the waters and make clear that we know that war is not precise to like the 10th of a win. I don't know that that for that, that solves this project. Cause I don't think that the people who are, again, I don't think the people who are like those nerds <laughs> are going to be persuaded by the presence yeah. of standard deviation, you know? <laughs> so. I can't imagine the old school uproar about, uh, 
what was the the error bars on batting average or the error bars on RBI? At least we know what it is. I don't have to give you a, a range. We can count it, right? <laughs> I guess right. other than like ancient baseball history when sometimes often that stuff was wrong and had to right. be corrected later. But uh, or I guess, you know, with Negro Leagues data that's incomplete, there's still right. uncertainty. But but yeah, that would be, I think, another arrow in the quiver for people who are anti-advanced stat because uh, already we've talked about how like milestones sometimes a little less fun with advanced stats because they can change you know you get to sure. a certain war milestone you could go back under it so or the war calculation could change mm -hmm. retroactively and that doesn't happen so much at least these days with your your standard counting stats yeah so, yeah yeah i have been i mean i don't want to say i'm amused because he seems like he's having a pretty rough go of it but like you know, there. I think I mentioned this when we talked about Acuna that there have been there's been some pushback on Jay Jaffe for his Mookie Betts piece, and you know, I feel like there's this sentiment among Braves fans like your Fangraphs is ignoring Acuna and they're ignoring his home runs and stolen bases, and I do feel discouraged when I see stuff like that. Not only because it's just kind of reactionary in a way that I I don't think is necessary based on either our content as it has existed or like the real stakes of something like this. But I'm like, you know that war thinks hitting home runs is good. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like that's good. <laughs> it's not, you know, we're not ignoring it. It's, it's <laughs> right. in there. He's mm -hmm. his base running value. It's in there. You know, yep. we, war thinks that's good. You know, mm -hmm. war thinks Ronald Acuna Jr. is good. Breaking yeah. news on effectively <laughs> wild. So I don't know. It can it can feel a little bit like we haven't really advanced the ball to use a football metaphor. Mm -hmm. But I am probably not giving enough credit across the non reactionary Braves contingent on Twitter because <laughs> I think a lot of people have even if they're not incorporating all of this stuff into their thinking every day, like they at least, you know, they, they're hearing it enough and, and sort of being shown it enough on broadcasts and what have you that like, I, I think people's baseline understanding is okay, mm -hmm. but maybe not so much that like standard deviation on the leaderboards would be persuasive. Yeah. I don't know, but you don't have to, the thing is you don't have to care about war. I mean, like, I think most of the people who listen to this podcast, again, we need a Different acronym. You sh everyone should care about a war as like a human struggle, mm -hmm. but wins above replacement. You don't have to care about that. Like it makes no never mind to me. That is a useful architecture for me to understand baseball. But if like you don't, that doesn't grab you. Okay, just don't yell at people. You know we don't have to yell at people. <laughs> All right, let's finish. I've got uh, these two will go together. I think some some hypotheticals to close out the week. This is from Taman who says, in video games, it is very common to have power-ups that have limited charges, such as the boomerang flower in Mario Kart that can be used only three times. Mm. What if outfielders' gloves were considered a power-up with five charges, with a charge being consumed every time the ball makes contact with the glove on the fly? So simply fielding a line drive single would not consume a charge, but when the charges run out, the outfielder must play with their bare hands, assuming oh. they don't get subbed out as soon as their glove disintegrates into a cloud of pixels. How oh. would this impact baseball? I imagine this would make games a lot more boring <laughs> as outfielders would be much more averse to diving for the ball and risking consuming a charge 
without making an out if the ball bounces off their glove. Yeah. And imagine droves of 2024 Angels fans heading for the exits after Mike Trout is removed from the game in the fourth inning after he records five quick flyouts. It's like fouling out in basketball, sort of, right? Yeah. I also have the amusing mental image of an outfielder with all five charges calling off the outfielder with only one charge remaining on a lazy fly ball. Would a team risk keeping their barehanded slugging outfielder in the game and moving him around the outfield to minimize his odds of having a chance because they need his bat in the lineup during a late and close game? Would this incentivize teams even more to develop multi-positional players who can move between the outfield and infield once their outfield charges run out? Please add this to the pile of fun yet obviously terrible ideas. <laughs> so, <laughs> if when you switch... Gloves, if, if you can change gloves when you move between positions and you get a fresh charge, right. yes. then then that would definitely make it more advantageous to have multi-position players. It already is. You already see a ton of that what, with benches being limited by giant bullpens. But right. yeah, although with the infield gloves, with, with their charges, I guess those would have to be used up by ground balls. Right, as opposed to balls on the fly, which would not use up a charge in the outfield. So it's got to work differently, I think, with the charges. But it it hurts to catch a batted ball. Yeah, <laughs> like, it does. It, it hurts to catch even like if you catch a home run or like a foul ball. I'm not talking about like pre-nets when it was like lethal speed. Uh, you know, right. you could be sitting out in the bleachers. And that ball has been traveling for at least several seconds and it's lost a lot of speed and it still smarts. You see people catch the ball like they're shaking their hand. It's yeah. red. They could injure themselves like it hurts to catch. Yeah. And obviously in the early days of baseball before they had gloves or at least gloves with good padding, it was expected that you would do this. And, and they did often. Yeah. <laughs> so they must have built up tough palms and calluses and probably they hurt themselves sometimes and probably balls were not hit quite as hard back then because they weren't throwing right. as hard and the batters weren't as big and they weren't uh, swinging for the fences so so maybe the the exit speeds were not what they are now but in addition to the fact that it's just harder to field <laughs> without a glove right. it hurts it'd be a big injury risk so i don't know if you would uh, keep someone in once their charges were out because yeah. not only would they be drastically reduced effectiveness as a fielder, but also there would be injury risk there. Yeah. I imagine that you almost certainly wouldn't put them back in because the injury risk does seem meaningful. Like people, you're right. People do underestimate the degree to which that hurts because you see those guys out there and they're shaking their hands and they're, yeah. you know, struggling. They're having a struggle. So mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know. And even if it's a, a lazy, like, pop up it, it's right. still it's easy to catch with a glove but it's it's coming down you know from right. high up in the air it's gathering speed like it's still unless you you catch it perfectly where you can kind of move your hands with the the movement of the ball and, and cushion it kind of then you could still potentially you know you could break a bird bone right you could so. break a bird bone ben and then and then you're mike trout and you might never mm -hmm. mean the same again <laughs> yeah so obviously, yes, I, I think what Taman was saying here, you would be more conservative. Uh, yeah. You'd probably see fewer diving plays in yes. the outfields. Of course, if someone's going to use up their last charge, if you don't have a backup or you need that guy's bat in the lineup, 
I don't know. It, I guess it depends on the situation. You'd have to make some some quick calculations on the fly, on the fly ball to <laughs> calculate, like, should I let this drop right. here because they need my bat in the lineup? Right. Is it like a low leverage situation? Is it two outs and nobody's on base and it's just going to be a single? And maybe yeah. is it worth it for me to drop this? I guess I guess it usually it wouldn't be, but right. yeah, I, I don't know. It wouldn't be fun to see just everyone pull up and and wait for right. the, the ball to bounce you know yeah yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't be in favor of, of it for all of those reasons it would be if you were like a really good late inning defensive replacement you'd suddenly be much more valuable as a bench yeah. option though right because you could i don't know if you can do you have to dive to use up a charge no but uh but if you catch it on the fly it it uses up a charge right that's right yeah yeah, if you could go back to the the very early like vintage baseball where you could catch it on the bounce then then you'd be okay i guess you wouldn't use up a charge (laughs) yeah but if we let people catch balls on the bounce and have that be an out in baseball like that's the end of civilization you know we're done (laughs) at that point there's no there's no there's no fixing that ben but Yeah. yeah i think that like rule changes in general you want them to add i think it's good when they add strategy i think that that is like a positive but you don't want it to add strategy at the expense of good play and i think this would do that like you would Mm -hmm. i don't know and people wouldn't do it right either you know Mm -hmm. that's the other thing people's sense of when they should do it and when they shouldn't I, i don't know how finely tuned that would be it might i don't know you'd have to override so much instinct can you yeah. imagine you've like worked all your life to be like the best fielder you can be to, you know, you're you're trying to run everything down. You've stopped eating chocolate so that you can play a good center field. Those aren't that's not a perfect like one to one. But like you, you've done all this stuff and now you're being told got to pull up sometimes, you know, got to mm-hmm. let that fall in. I think that that would cause like an existential crisis for some of these guys. They'd be like, but I've worked my whole life. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder whether this would increase offense or depress offense because you'd have more balls falling in, I guess, but then mm-hmm. also you'd have your starters would be fouling out. Right. They'd be out of charges, so you'd have backups. Maybe this would lead to less max effort pitching because you'd have to have smaller pitching staffs to make room for all your defensive substitutes yeah. who are going to go in, right? Or would it lead to even more emphasis on strikeout oriented staffs because mm. fewer balls in play you're yeah using fewer charges right that's a good so, point yeah i don't know i don't, I don't know, know man. change things it's a it's a real conundrum but i do think it would end the sport you know <laughs> but i like the idea and you will know the correct words to describe the phenomena i am trying to describe because you're your video game man i i mm. do like the idea of like i don't know being able to bounce on a mushroom or something and then have Mm -hmm. that you know like we could do that like you could have like stuff come up from underneath and you're like oh i'm gonna use the mushroom we got another question about placing trampolines in places which i guess we could answer now that jeff sullivan's not here but we'll save that for another time (laughs) but that reminded me i i was raving about the late brooks robinson's defense last Mm -hmm. time and he's surprisingly a, a natural lefty, which is weird because, you know, he's a third baseman and he had like a, when he was a child, his his dad 
taught him to uh, throw a ball right-handed before it was obvious that he was actually left-handed. And then he started hitting righty too, swinging a a broomstick at pebbles. And so he just got used to doing those things right-handed, even though he did everything else in his life except baseball stuff left-handed. And it's probably a good thing because if if he hadn't, then he wouldn't have been able to play third base. He probably would have had to play first and wouldn't have been such a defensive standout. He maybe wasn't fast enough to be a great outfielder. But what uh, Craig Wright pointed out in writing about this, I hadn't considered this, but Tris Speaker was uh, another guy like this. There are a bunch of guys who like they'll have a childhood injury, like they'll sprain a wrist or they'll break an arm or something. And rather than just wait for that arm to heal, they'll just like learn to (laughs) do stuff with the other one. And then they'll do that for the rest of their life, which sounds kind of amazing to me. I I broke a clavicle and I wasn't like, I guess I'll just, yeah, but I just, I fell fell off a seesaw, had like a, a seesaw miscommunication with my grandma when I was five or so. But while I had the broken collarbone, I wasn't like, well, I guess I'm a lefty now. (laughs) But but these athletes, uh, they do sometimes and somehow they make that work. But Craig postulated that Tris Speaker and Brooks Robinson, two of the greatest fielders ever, it's possible he said that their expertise in fielding was enhanced by having their glove on their dominant hand, their natural hand. And Brooks Robinson himself suggested that that was a possibility. So like... Because their maybe more nimble hand was the one that actually had the glove, whereas with most people, you're throwing with your dominant hand and and you have your glove on the other hand. So like maybe part of how nimble he was at uh, picking up grounders, like he never had the greatest throwing arm. He had a really quick release, but he could just stab everything. And maybe it was because he was actually like he had the glove on his dominant hand. I had I had never thought of that. So if, if we could all just learn to throw with the other hand and have the gloves on our more dominant hand, then maybe we'd all be better at fielding. I love how those kinds of stories always fall into one of two buckets. They're either like incredible stories about the, you know, resilience of of the human body and the plasticity of the human mind or this guy had a terrible dad. <laughs> yeah, <it laughs> made him could, do could be either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some maybe sometimes it's both, but like some of them you're like, "Wow, that's so cool." And then other times you're like, "Are you okay, buddy? You need some therapy though." <laughs> Yeah. Trish Speaker, he threw righty until he was thrown from a horse when he was 11. Oh and my so he, he broke his right arm and he's like, I don't want to wait for this to heal. I got to get back to playing yeah. baseball. So he just taught himself to throw lefty and that was and that. Like, that's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. I just think about, I, I, I don't know. I know that I'm good for one of these every like 15 to 20 episodes, but they're really remarkable, these dudes, you know? Yeah, they're really yeah. something, because right. I could not do that. I could, no. maybe I could have if it had happened early enough in my life, you know? Like I said, those brains, they're plastic. Yeah, if you had the brain plasticity that, that helps you, like, learn languages when you're right. young, I, I don't know if that applies as well to handedness, but I could imagine, you know, okay, sure. if you're a, a toddler, maybe, but 11? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it back to 11. I was pretty set in my ways handedness wise at that point so like you're like i was already smoking and drinking coffee by that age (laughs) yeah 
<laughs> Mickey Lulich, another one, very durable pitcher, threw every pitch lefty, but he was a natural righty who had a wow. childhood accident. And he's just like, yep, yeah, I'm going to be a lefty now. <laughs> I guess it speaks to either great athleticism and or love for baseball that they weren't just like, I'll just wait for this to heal. Right. Get out there like everyone else would. No, I will completely rewire my brain and right. body to get back to just a little bit faster. And somehow I'll be amazing at that, too. All right. Last one. This is from Jscape, Patreon supporter. He says, just read Joe Posnanski's story in his new book about the Warren Spahn versus Juan Marshall mar marathon matchup. Tough to say. Marshall yeah. marathon matchup. That's quite a mouthful. So imagine workhorse pitcher lives up to the cliche where he gets stronger as the game goes on. So each inning he pitches, opponent batting average against declines or I guess we could use whatever metric. For our purposes, he recovers video game style, so video games, the, the commonality here, and is always ready to take the ball in a regular rotation. How big does the inning-by-inning -inning improvement have to be for the team to take it seriously? If it's like 10 points per inning, so that if hitters start by batting 250 in the first inning, they hit 160 in the ninth? How many starts go by before he's allowed to throw a potentially ridiculous number of pitches in a game? Does he have to do this for three to four years before he's allowed to settle down after a rough start and throw 200 pitches? And related to number one, how bad could he be early and still be allowed to go late? So could batters hit 400 in the first against him if the drop was 50 points and you knew he'd be lights out in the eighth and ninth? So... He gets better as the game goes on, like legitimately, not just as a, a cliche. Right. How long would it take to recognize that? He's a starter. Yeah, he's a starter. Yeah. I guess he has to be a starter, right? Yeah. How long does it take? Uh, two months? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I wonder. I guess, as always with these questions, it comes down to like, does his stuff get better? Like, right. Does he look better? Does he throw right. harder? Or right. how is, is he the just being magically better? better? <laughs> right. How and and like how is the better manifesting? Like yes. is the like you said is the better uh, an uptick in his stuff? Is yeah. does he feel better? Does he right. say I feel like I'm getting stronger? Or, is he yeah. suddenly demonstrating like pinpoint command, or is it purely uh, results? based mm -hmm. assessment yeah i think that that would matter a good amount all of these questions are so interesting because they all kind of assume that like <laughs> front offices and 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 coaching staffs are like open to the idea of magic right because mm -hmm. you you would have to kind of hang around for a while before you would be doing it consistently enough consistently enough that you would be like Oh, this is a, this is, I don't know if skill is quite the right word, but like, this is a persistent pattern of performance that yeah. is like meaningful. It's not just a weird fluky thing mm -hmm. that, yeah, like you'd have to believe in magic. I think yeah. you have to believe in magic. <laughs> if his stuff improves and he doesn't get gassed, you'd notice that immediately oh I yeah think, right right he would just never lose any stuff and he'd say yeah you don't need to take me out i feel better and better as the game goes on right but if he was as mystified by this as, as right. anyone and there there wasn't any obvious sign then yeah at least months i guess yeah and 
statistically speaking, it, it would take me a while to believe it because like times through the order splits for individual pitchers in individual yeah. seasons are pretty volatile. Like Very volatile. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes like if a guy has more pitches, a greater number of pitches, he he may be right. less susceptible because he just has more more different offerings to show people as the game goes on. But but generally, that can really bounce around a lot, so it would take me a while to buy into, yeah, this guy defies the typical pattern for pretty much all other pitchers. So, and and as for, like, how bad could he be at the beginning if you know that he's going to get better? Right. So you, you'd have to fully buy into this. Right. And you'd have to know that yeah. uh, he's going to, it's worth it to just grit yes. your teeth, get through the, the first few innings when he sucks. <laughs> so, right. Because he's going to be like lights out later. So yeah, that that would have to be, I think you'd have to have the demonstrable uptick in stuff. Yes. And then probably they'd be perpetually trying to figure out, well, how do we just yeah, why are you make like it better this? from the start? Yeah. Yeah. It's like sometimes pitchers will struggle, especially in the first inning, like league-wide pitchers do tend to struggle in the first inning, but but even more so than most. And, you know, they'll be like, do we need to change the way you warm up and your pregame routine? Or is this just a fluky, random thing? But but with this guy, I'd be like, well, if you can dial it up and get greed in the fourth inning, then can't we just, you know, can you can you throw like a simulated three innings before you come into the game and and then you're going to be good from the start? But I guess if it's magic, then the answer could just be no, <laughs> it has to work that way. Yeah, I don't know that you'd be given enough rope to really show that it was a skill. And yeah, like, man, oh, it would be so frustrating. Can you imagine? This is like this would be a terrible thing to wish on someone, right? Because mm. you know, in there is like really high quality yeah. stuff and command, and you can be the you can be this incredible pitcher, but not for a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Well, we will leave it there. Enjoy the last weekend of regular season baseball, everyone. Wow. Next time we talk to you, we'll be talking about the playoffs. We'll be previewing the playoffs. I'm on that time of year. <laughs> I am yeah. unwell. I'm yes. Ben after last night. Look, we're not gonna and who knows what'll happen in the hours between when we're done and mm -hmm. when the game and then the it's available for everyone to listen to. But I just yeah. want everyone to know not well. Unwell. Yeah. We'll debrief, we'll decompress next time whichever way it goes for you yeah. we'll we'll talk it through All right, we're going to wrap up with a stat blast, which will be a little out of the ordinary today. We're going to be joined by a, a guest to deliver a, a guest stat blast, which we are sort of squeezing into the rubric of a, a stat blast because we were planning to talk to him anyway so that he could promote his new labor of love, his magnum opus, his masterwork. 
Chris Hannell, who has joined us before, he is the founder of the Patreon Discord group. He is one of the people who keeps Effectively Wild stats and keeps track of all of the guests who have been on Effectively Wild, including himself. And he is now the creator of a documentary, a full-length, almost two-hour documentary called The Minnesota Twins and the Cruelest Streak in Sports which you all know the Minnesota Twins have not won a playoff game in a very long time. They've lost 18 in a row, in fact. And Chris has dug into how exactly that happened and how improbable it was. So, Chris, welcome. We wanted to talk to you about this before the streak is snapped, and I have every confidence that that will happen soon. Thank you very much. You have no idea how much pressure there was on me to get this video finished before the <laughs> postseason started. It's like... Well, Talk about a deadline. <laughs> yes, you were keeping me posted on the progress, so I know that you were working very hard on this. Yeah. And yeah, you had to get it done before the streak is snapped, which exactly. uh, we all know will happen next week for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and I've said that the other 17 <laughs> times, but you know, <laughs> what's what's one more? Right. You know? So tops now is presenting our stat blast as always, even though this is an unusual stat blast and we've told you about tops now before we'll tell you about tops now again, but tops now is a product that enables you to purchase baseball cards on a very tight turnaround. They are available the day after things happen. You can go to tops.com. You can find a new selection of baseball cards every day that are themed in some way, some statistical accomplishment, some team accomplishment, a debut by a player, whatever it is. I know that you, Chris Hannell, have taken tops now up on I have. this product. Advertising works on Effectively Wild. You heard about tops now on the podcast. And yeah. You purchased a card. I forget which card it was. I bought the Drew Maggi card. That's right. Yeah. I was so That's excited right. for Drew Maggi because when he was with the twins... I was mm -hmm. so excited for him to get a uh, time in, and that's if there's one thing I'm angry at with the Twins is that they didn't put him into a game. So I was so happy that he got into a game with the Pirates. I got the card, and I am currently awaiting the Royce Lewis hits four oh. Grand Slams tops now card. That should be showing up any minute now. Excellent. All right. We didn't even put you up to this. Nope. I had no idea this was about to happen, <laughs> but yeah. I was ready. Yeah. I looked on the Tops Now site. There are actually 23 Twins cards this season. I mean, most of them are, are sold out. They're gone. You missed your chance. But there's been an awful lot of Royce Lewis and also some Pablo Lopez and... Gosh, there's uh, even some Byron Buxton and Carlos Correa. You don't have to have your best season to get a Topps Now card. You just have to do something at some point that is notable. And the most recent Twins Topps Now card is the Twins clinching the Central. And I'm sure that there will be a, a Topps Now card next week, not to jinx anything, when the Twins finally end the drought and win a postseason game. So... What made you want to document the streak? You are not a documentarian, right? Your YouTube channel includes one previous video <laughs> <laughs> that was about four minutes long. <laughs> so yeah. this this is a little bit of a departure for you. You're just going straight to the, the feature length documentary here. 
I do have a confession to make. In a past life, about 20 years ago, I was a filmmaker. Um, I worked in visual huh. effects. You have done everything. You've yeah, had every, every kind job. of career. My, <laughs> yeah, every job. At one During one job interview ages ago, I got a call back from someone who said, we're calling only three people. You're one of them. You're by far the least qualified, but we just got to know what's going on with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, well, this will be a plane flight that's interesting. Uh, but yeah, my resume is a bit hard to nail down. But yeah, yeah I was... We, we talked to you about score bugs, people yep. may recall, on episode 1895 about a year ago. So, yeah. yeah. So, and you're a Twins fan, obviously. Yes, so you've, huge, you've suffered twins fan. For, for your art here. Yeah. And I've been... I've wanted to do something like this for a long time, but never really had the right idea. And I think there was a stat blast that I wrote into asking about win streaks like the the tigers and the guardians had like one team had won 20 in a row and i tacked on them like what's the longest postseason streak and you were because i knew it would be a twins answer and that was around august of 2020 and then the twins lost to the astros in the 2020 playoffs and around december of 2020 i started kicking around this script idea after writing an article doing some of the math and I just worked on the script for like two years, two and a half wow. years, and just never having the courage to do it. And then finally started learning enough 3D again and dusting off the skills. I'm like, I'm going to take a shot at this. It'll be maybe a 20 minute video, you know, <laughs> maybe that that feels really long, but you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. And now this week finally released. It's an hour and 50 minutes long. The feedback has just been phenomenal like i'm just kind of like awestruck i don't think it's really hit yet just how much this has kind of struck a chord with twins fandom because a lot of people are like why would i put myself through two hours of that trauma and i'm like no it's a hopeful story but you gotta we have to process our trauma together in order to get to the good stuff at the other side so that's kind of the spirit of where it came from and and thankfully that's the spirit that people are taking it in I wonder if it speaks to some, you know, perhaps dormant, hard to look at, afraid it will skitter away if you think about it too long or hard optimism on your part or the part of the broader Twins fan base that like, you got to deal with this now because they're going to win next week. And then, yeah. and then it's not going to be relevant in the same way, although I, I still think it would be quite interesting to folks because it is such a... I feel like I can say this as a Mariners fan, right? Yeah. We have a we have a kinship, a kinship, right? Yes, that's exactly the word I was going to use. Yes, <laughs> that like it is. Um, it's such a long time, so it would still be it would still be interesting to people, but um, perhaps a little less uh, newsy uh, after next week. Knock on wood. I mean, you're you know if things go the way I want them to this weekend. Like we are going to be temporary enemies in all mm. likelihood well here. it's really funny that you mentioned that because there are right now there are a lot of very breathless spreadsheets being passed around twins fans about now if houston wins one but if then <laughs> mariners win two and then texas wins this then we face this team and i'm like right. i i just want to get to game one please yeah like, i can't yeah. i can't do i know we're not getting the two seat anymore let's let's just get right let's get to target field on tuesday <laughs> so Speaking of spreadsheets, this is ostensibly a stat blast. And the, <laughs> the stat is not just that the Twins have lost a lot of games in a row, Ooh. a record number. It's a little more complex than that. You you do some math to try to figure out exactly how improbable it was. And I guess there are a number of ways one could 
calculate that. Yeah. And you have brought a, a precision to this yes. that has uh, maybe made it look more improbable, not necessarily inflating the improbability, but just capturing the full extent of the improbability. So would you care to walk people through sure. how you figured out just how unlikely it is that the Twins have lost 18 playoff games in a row? So the thesis behind it was such that I was having trouble communicating to people who weren't Twins fans just how painful the streak has been. Because 0-18, yeah, that sounds really bad. But then it's like, yeah, but that's over two decades. And then it's like, okay, yeah, but it's like, you know, what are the odds of that? And so the coin flip method, if you were to flip a coin, it'd be, I think, 266,144 to one against. I don't know why I don't have that number in front of me right now, uh, <laughs> but it's it's in the 260,000s. And then a tweet that was shared by Andrew Woodruff uh, after the uh, 2020 series basically said that if you went by the Vegas betting line, where the Twins were underdogs in 13 of the 18 games you get a number that's like 28,000 to one against. And I'm like, that number is not reflective at all. Because in mo- in a lot of these games, the Twins were heavy favorites. In six of the 18 games, they reached a win expectancy of 75% or more. Win expectancy that is brought to you by Fangraphs.com. <laughs> Go to Fangraphs.com. Be a Fangraphs supporter like me. <laughs> they reached 85% win expectancy in four out of the 18 games they reached uh 90% in two of them they reached 96% in one of them and in so many they were they were in they were in reach it was there just closed the game out they led in all but one of the games against the Yankees in this streak they scored first in all but one wow and so what i was thinking about cuz and i go into this in the movie i used to be a poker player at one point and they and we have a thing that's like called Sklansky dollars, which helps you understand, well, I got my money in while I was ahead. So even if I lost, I can keep track and see I'm playing good poker. And so I was like, well, what if I knew when to place a wager on the twins based on the win expectancy? If they mm-hmm. were to lose every single time I found that exact moment, what are the odds that they would do so? And I am very sad to tell you that I have that number. Okay. And that number is sixty nine billion fifty two million two hundred and twenty seven thousand three hundred and nine to one against. Wow. wow. Mm-hmm. And good number. And I compared that to other losing streaks because I wanted to make sure that I under I'm like, okay, so I've just I've created a big number. Does this big number mean anything against other losing streaks? And I'm here to tell you, yes, it does. Mm. Like, for example, the 22-game win streak that Cleveland had in 2017, if you were to look at their minimum win expectancy and they still won, they're only 293 million to one. Mm. The Orioles' 19-game losing streak in 2021, 1.6 billion to one. The closest that I could find was the 21-game losing streak by the Orioles in 1988, which has three more games in it which that's what I keep trying to stress to people is like they have more games to work with to up the odds because you're at least doubling it every single time. They come to 10.6 billion to one, which is still seven times more likely than the twins postseason losing streak. Hmm. And I was like, I have found my stat. I have found my way to communicate my pain. Here you go. And I, I now share it with the world. 
and it seems like people are receiving it well. I don't know whether it's commiseration or catharsis or, yes, you're our champion and you have captured the pain that we have felt here. Here's here's a nice uh, almost two-hour documentary I can send to people if they just want to get a sense of how it has felt to be a Twins fan in yeah. the playoffs. <laughs> it's, it's been a little bit of everything. There's been a lot of Twins fans that are like, okay, I cried a bunch during this. This is a, amazing. I, someone understands me. There's been a lot of people who aren't Twins fans that are like, I had no idea. I'm now rooting for the Twins in the postseason. <laughs> been a lot of very sweet messages from people. Just basically, it's it's a group hug. It is an online group hug. And the energy feels really good going into next week. And I mm-hmm. think that the team feels like there's been some words about it. Like in 2017, Brian Dozier came out and basically said, yeah. We lost, the Twins have lost against the Yankees historically, but that doesn't, you know, that was years ago. So what? And the fates just basically like, oh, would you like to know so what? We will tell you so what. We will let you take a 3 nothing lead in the first inning and then yank that football right out of Charlie Brown's uh, grasp. But this team has been very like, no, we understand what this means to fans. We take this very seriously and we're going to go get that win. This streak yeah. ends right now. And I'm like, that is the energy that I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. And with the young core that they have and everything that's happening with their, their playing the second half, they've played like a 98 win pace over the second half. Like it's like the energy's good. The momentum's great. Let's go. This, mm-hmm. this ends now. <laughs> well, Boy, I I hope that you just didn't just Brian Dozier this yourself, but no, but. I I think that I think that dismissing it is the wrong way to go. I think embracing it and being like, yes, this is the identity that we're dealing. with. This is the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. I really wish that it was a best of five instead of a best of three, so we had <laughs> one more shot. But mm-hmm. you know, they're all at Target Field, mm-hmm. so you know, I gotta I gotta cross my fingers and hope for the best. <laughs> Does the fact that it's not going to be a Yankees-Twins rematch matter one iota? Uh, do you feel, is there any part of you that feels like we not only have to win one, we've got to beat the Yankees at some point? Or are you content with just, oh, let's let's get on the board here. Let's get a W. I think that 80% of me is like, let's just get a W because mm-hmm. obviously there was the series against Oakland in 2006, and then there's the series against the Astros in 2020. If we get the Astros this year, then that will be a little nice, you know, little extra bonus point to be able to get past that way and get a little bit of revenge, quote unquote. But there's a little part of me that is like, man, it would be really nice if we just swept the Yankees like 40 to nothing over three games and really just exercised some demons a little bit. That would be really nice. But I don't want to tempt the wrath from high atop the thing. So I'll I'll be thankful that we're not we're not having to have that extra baggage on top of it. Right. So it's not just that they've lost 18 in a row, it's that they really should have won a lot of those. They were well on their way to winning a lot of those and so it's extra extra improbable. Is there a specific game that caused you the most pain. Well, 2009 and... game two. 2009 game two. 2009 game two. That's the and only answer. Is that ben. also the most statistically? It's not. It it's is not. not. Okay. So 2004 so... game 
four. Oh, I need to look it up. <laughs> oh, no. I need to look it up. Uh, 2004, game four was the most unlikely, but 2009, game two, I think they were 91.7% to win, but that is the Joe Maurer double. Mm. The Phil Cuzzy, mm. it's the top of the 11th. Joe Maurer comes to bat to lead things off. And he hits he hits a ball down the left field line. It glances off the left fielder's glove in fair territory, lands fair. Phil Cuzzy, because it's the postseason, they have two extra umpires down the foul lines. Phil Cuzzy is 15 feet away, and he calls it foul. <laughs> this ended up leading to, so it would have been a double. It would have been a ground rule double. He ended up getting a single instead. Then they hit two more singles. Maurer absolutely would have scored. And now people are like, well, they would have pitched to the next hitters, you know, differently or something like that. Just let me have my moment, okay? <laughs> they Maurer gets to third. It's like Kubel singles. And then the batter after Kubel singles, it's bases loaded, nobody out. And then immediately the twins go line drive, pop fly, dribbler, and the twins don't score. And then immediately in the bottom of the 11th, Mark Deschera hits a home run to walk off the Twins. Ooh, it's a tough one. That is, that is the game that haunts, haunts me. And it, I know that I'm not the only one. There was also like a Carlos Gomez running error earlier where we would, Delman Young would have scored on a hit, but Carlos Gomez got thrown out on the Bates pass on a total toot bland before Delman Young could cross home. That would have been the winning run. Like there's just so much in that game that like if you had hair at the beginning of that game, you you have less by the end. I mean, you knew you knew we were gonna ask you about like it being painful, but I love how Ben's like, so relive your worst baseball trauma. <laughs> do you I've remember been reliving what it, it for the yeah. last few months? Yeah, do you remember like what it is? Do you, have a movie a about it. do you have a specific one in mind? And of course you're like, here's the exact moment when my hopes and dreams ended. Yes. <laughs> what you were saying about how you, you can't assume that the sequence of events would have been the same if other things had gone differently. That, in my mind, because I grew up watching the Yankees beat the Twins sometimes, is... Uh, Always, my mind immediately goes to, oh, that's the fallacy of the predetermined outcome, because yes. that's that's what Michael Kay calls it. And I don't know if anyone else calls it that. Like, I don't know yeah. if he, he coined that. If you Google fallacy of the predetermined outcome, every result is Michael Kay related. The, the Urban Dictionary definition comes up, and it says it's Michael Kay. <laughs> it's just he coined that. I mean, he didn't coined that concept right there must be a, a a more technical name for that but i i like his branding there's just a whole generation of yankees fans and maybe baseball fans who think oh yeah fallacy of the predetermined outcome it's it's michael k's lingo for that yeah i'm just sitting i'm just sitting here stewing right now like <laughs> Uh, I, there's, there's a mon. I, I keep waiting to hear when you get to the, uh, the Yankees horror montage. I keep waiting to hear back from you and be like, ah, yes, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I was on the other side of that. It was, it was not horror for me. Maybe at the time, I've been always very nice and not brought it up with you. <laughs> so I encourage people to check this out. Ideally, I guess, before the playoffs start over this weekend while the streak is still alive and has not been snapped or extended. But, of course, you can watch it 
whenever. It's a good retrospective. And if you like a John Boyce style sports documentary, then you will certainly enjoy the Chris Hannell style sports documentary as well. I hang a lantern on it. It is mm-hmm. it is a very like John Boyce is like my filmmaking hero. And <laughs> there's there's very much like I wanted to make a film. This was the language that I understood. I started to work out my own voice and whatnot. I got a lot of people being like, you stole from John Boyce. And it's like, this, I cannot make it stressful. Yes, I'm (laughs) absolutely drawing from that influence and loving working in that space and doing my own stuff with it. But yeah, like if of all the people that could be like, hey, I watched your film. It was really good. If John Boyce did that, I'd melt into a puddle. (laughs) So yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything else that you would like people to know either about the video or about the Twins streak and fans suffering? Any fun facts or extremely unfun facts or stats um, that you came across during the making of this video? I I do want to say, like genuinely, just kind of in Meg's direction, like fan graphs made this video possible in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. There's so many stats that I was able to dig through and I used the fan graphs win expectancy instead of the baseball ref win expectancy because it has another layer of another magnitude of precision. There was a lot of defensive stats that I dug into for the 2017 argument about the Joe Maurer first base glove that never was. But fan graphs is all throughout this video. And so thanks to fan graphs for making it possible. I appreciate <laughs> that very much. Glad it was a good resource. It was an excellent resource. I would say Hug your local Twins fan because they're going to need it over the next few days in the lead up to all of this. And yeah, I just I continue to be blown away by how much people have enjoyed the film and the feedback that I've gotten. And anything that I could say about the Twins is probably in the video because it's, mm-hmm. it's all there. Trust me. Yep. All right. Well, we will link to it. You can find it on YouTube or on our show page, The Minnesota Twins and The Cruelest Streak in Sports by Chris Hannell. And we hope for your sake, I suppose, or at least I do. Meg I do. Reserve, hey reserve now. judgment to, to see who the Twins opponent More than is. one team can have postseason success at the same time. It's okay. Yeah, but not if they're playing each other. I mean, I guess. <laughs> you you got to understand. If the Twins win one game, that's catharsis. So if for some reason, God forbid, it's Twins Mariners and the Twins lose two games to one, there's still going to be so much celebration in Minneapolis. (laughs) Like, I don't, that's not what I'm rooting for, but I'm just saying like that will, it's going to be so much cheaper than therapy is is what what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that that sounds sort of like a nice mindset to go into October with. Like, just, I would say low expectations, except that the Twins have failed to satisfy that expectation of winning a game for a very long time. Yeah, (laughs) but it's not a fan base, it's a support group. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. But but most fed bases will still be upset even if they had a good season. If they lose, when they lose, every team but one eventually loses will be upset about that. I'm sure Twins fans would be disappointed, obviously, oh, if, yeah. they, if they get knocked out. But if there's the consolation prize of at least we won one and this monkey is off our back, then... They'll be able to enjoy success again, is yeah. what I'm trying to say. It's like if, when every... When every victory comes with that looming dread of, well, yeah, but we're still just going to run into a brick wall in the playoffs, It's mm-hmm. you can't fully embrace the good moments. And mm-hmm. that's what I want back for this, for this franchise again, mm-hmm. is being able to do that. 
will you be making an addendum to the video one way or another if <laughs> if the streak ends or if the streak is expected <laughs> extended? I've gone on record in some places and been like, yeah, I think I have to. I don't know. Like, it really depends on what happens. And also, like, this video just about killed me, man. Uh, <laughs> just in terms yeah, of the amount of the amount of energy I put into it and the emotional energy, it's like I I really need to see what's gonna happen. And then maybe I do the addendum. Maybe I don't. But hey, you know, who's to say what the future holds? I hope if you do, it's a happy addendum. So best of luck with the video and best of luck with the Twins playoff run. Thanks very much. I'm three-fifths of the way to meeting my own metric of joining the Effectively Wild <laughs> Five-Timers Club. <laughs> I was going to say, you're always the, the first and only person to notify new entrants to that club. So you will uh, be the first to notify yourself if that happens. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, I guess you've all got to decide whether tis better to have played and lost than never to have played at all. Mariners were barely in any playoff games over that span. They didn't even have a chance to have a long playoff losing streak. It's the eternal question, whether it's worse, whether it's more heartbreaking cumulatively to just be bad and miss the playoffs every year or to be good enough to get there, but not good enough to win when you do. There's definitely a more acute kind of pain when you make it and have your dreams dashed than when you never really had any hope or expectations at all. We recorded this episode prior to the news that the Giants were firing Gabe Kapler. One of Meg's preseason predictions on the preseason predictions pod was that there would be an in-season managerial firing. Just got in under the wire with that one. A semi-surprising firing. Not a great Giants season, but then not a great Giants team. Perhaps we will touch on that more next time. And in other NL West matters, got an email from Patreon supporter Josh in response to our discussion of Josh Hader's usage and insistence on pitching only in save situations for an inning at a time. He said he agreed with just about everything we said, but he reminded me of one quote from Hader that I forgot to mention. He said, ultimately, what rubbed me and many others the wrong way was neither Hader's failing to appear in the game nor his playoff race comment, because it's true that despite somehow still being alive, the Padres are effectively eliminated. It's what he said after, quote, you guys want me to do everything, end quote. Definitionally, because of the way the Padres deploy Hader, he's neither asked to do everything nor to do anything more than any other closer pitching today is asked to do. The comment came across as a shot at the fans and media for being unreasonable, even though we only expect that Hader will do the bare minimum as a closer 95% of the time and hope that he will get out of his comfort zone to help the team the other 5% of the time. It's true. Wanting him to get four outs instead of three on occasion is a little different from wanting him to do everything. Meg and I want you to support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free aside from our Stat Blast sponsorship, and get themselves access to some perks. Chip Lock, Jason Eads, Will Labadee, Cameron, and Chris Baber. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, access to monthly bonus episodes, one of which we'll be recording this weekend, playoff live streams coming up soon, discounts on ad-free fangrass memberships and merch, and so much more. Check out all the offerings. Sign up now to get in on the playoff live streams, patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. Anyone and everyone, though, can contact us via email. Send us your questions and comments at podcast.fangraphs.com. 
You can send us your intro and outro themes, too, if you want to join our listener rotation. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Shane McKeon is off today. Filling in for him is our old friend, back in the fold, Dylan Higgins. Thanks to Dylan for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the last gasps of the playoff race and the regular season, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Does baseball look the same to you as it does to me? When we look at baseball, how much do we see? Well, the curveballs bend and the home runs fly. There's more to the game than meets the eye. To get the stats compiled and the stories filed, fans on the internet might get riled, but we can break it down on Effectively Wild.